These are the true stories of farmers, <coughs> conservationists, sustainable ag advocates, and researchers dedicated to advancing public policies to achieve a sustainable farming and food system in the United States. Find out what happens when people take action and start caring for the land. Today is um, February 11th, 2016. We're in Washington, D.C. at the Mott House at 122 Maryland Avenue. And today I get to interview uh, Lorette Pichano, who's been the longtime direct executive director of the Rural Coalition. She's got a lot to tell us about the work of the uh, Rural Coalition over the last, I think, almost four decades, three and a half decades of work. And so we're very eager to hear your story. I'd like to start out with, as I do with all the interviews, uh, with some history about you before we get into a lot of the good work and the challenge that the, that, uh, the coalition has dealt with and will be dealing with in the future. So let's hear about you all the way from your childhood. All the way from childhood. Well, um, like actually several members of our board who are recognized activists in uh, sustainable ag and equity. Um, I was born in New York City um, in Queens. Um, and John Zippert, our chairperson, was born in Manhattan and uh, Sammy Horn. Uh, who's from Jamaica, was born in Jamaica, New York. Um, so, uh, you know, the, but there's a lot of rural traditions. But my grandmother, who came from Italy in 1908, had emigrated to upstate New York. And my father always visited there. His mother married and moved to New York City. And he moved us back. And so he moved back with five kids. Uh, well, with two of us. Um in the late 1950s. And so I grew up in Endicott, New York, um, which was an immigrant town. It was a town where there was a shoe factory where mm. many, many immigrants. So I grew up in an immigrant culture. And um, my dad had, um, during World War II, joined, um, he signed up for um, the draft in 1943, but he was still only 17 um, for, to, to fight in World War II. So he was sent to Cornell University for an officer training program and for a couple of months until he was old enough to go fight in the Battle of the Bulge. And he wanted me to go to Cornell University because when he went back and applied as a young Italian Catholic, he wasn't able to get into Cornell. And so I went to Cornell and I got accepted at the New York State College of Agriculture and life sciences. Um, I had actually started out in human ecology and I moved over to agriculture. But our family had come from an agricultural culture um, in Italy and also Ireland. And, you know, we that was part of culture, the making of cheese. And, you know, my grandmother first lived in a little village on the Delaware River in Sullivan County called Calicoon. So planting the soil, planting the tomato plants um, was very much part of what we did. And in the College of Agriculture, at that time, hunger was the huge issue of the world. And so I um, got into agricultural economics and rural sociology with professors like Walt Coward, who later worked at the Ford Foundation. And, um, you know, we began researching and looking at the international side of issues. There were lots of international um, students at the time. And then I was also active in the Catholic community. And, you know, it was kind of hunger and social justice were the, the hallmarks of that era. And so that's really how I came to this. And I did one semester in grad school at Cornell, and then I was accepted into the East-West Center in Honolulu, Hawaii, which, um, you know, was bringing together scholars from the United States, and um, but also all of the Asian countries. And during that time, I went to the Philippines. This was the late 1970s. And at that point, um, you know, the Philippines was working in the rural Philippines in the late 1970s under um, the Marcos regime. Um, you know, I was 23 or something like that. Um, there was a lot to process and learn about the land struggles. It was land in the peasants. And, you know, I remember one of the extension agents saying, you know, we, this new rice, um, the, the thing that's wrong with it is we can't ask our wives to plant rice three times a year. 
You know, it's like upsetting the culture. Um, you're looking at an outcome. And it kind of got me asking questions and, you know, also looking at where the military was involved in pushing certain things. What's the role of the government? And the end of the time I was in Honolulu, I was also looking at the degree of respect that the institution was showing to all the my colleagues from other countries who were supposed to go back and lead agricultural development because at that time you know there were so many people on the land so it was kind of a time to understand the struggle you know i think walter mondale came back and did a speech and praised ferdinand marcos's human rights practices and we organized demonstrations at that time and it was a time when we realized there was a disconnect between how people could talk to the government and so I married and resettled in Washington DC and um, the first place I was accepted for working I was interested in hunger was at Bread for the World mm -hmm. and I worked for Bread for the World for um, a couple of years and you know it was my assignment <laughs> to go and were in, on the international hunger issues. And, you know, we were working on um, the famines in, uh, you know, in Ethiopia and Somalia and Mozambique. And, you know, I remember meeting the finance minister from Mozambique and he, you know, we asked, what do you need? And he says, I need you to send us your old jeans because we have nothing, there's nothing to buy in the marketplace and we need to pay the farmers. And so it was understanding that agriculture was a whole lot more complex, how the economic pieces worked. Um, you know, I started working with Bill Gray and the Congressional Black Caucus. We were trying to get emergency aid. Um, we were having a debate with some of the top leaders of the Appropriations Committee that you couldn't spend more than $25 million in logistics in Mozambique to distribute food. And then raising the questions that I'd started raising at Cornell is what exactly does food aid do? And the whole preference about local agriculture. So I really came with a very international view. Um, the first thing I worked on when I got to Washington was the establishment of the emergency grain reserve, which was something, um, you know, Nick Modern and Jamie Edgerton at the, um, who were at Bread for the World at that time. Um, and we got that passed. At that point, um, President Reagan had um, put an embargo on um, wheat to the Soviet Union. So there were 4 million tons of wheat off the market. And we began to learn the complexities of markets. So before, putting wheat into a reserve wouldn't have been acceptable. But now, because the government held this wheat, it, we were able to translate it into um, an, a reserve. And, you know, um, Secretary um, Berglund signed the bill and came to the Methodist building and met with us all. And, you know, we were celebrating that. And so that's kind of how I, you know, came to Bread for the World. And I, you know, and we can talk more about some of the other things that we did. And um, then I started... Um, working. I had children and, you know, I was still working, but sometimes more consulting. So um, I was invited to come work with Interfaith Action for Economic Justice. And, you know, that's where, you know, also during that time, we worked a lot with FERD and others who were connected. So we were very much connected in those times. And at that time, it was basically to be doing some leadership of the massive debate that was going on over what model of commodity policy we should have. So that was like the early, um, and, and there was a big disagreement within the church organizations because interfaith action brought together the denominations. Mm -hmm. And so I worked, you know, and I wrote the Family Farm Networker. And, um, you know, when we were doing the whole debate around the um, 85 Farm Bill by then, and um, then we moved right into the Ag Credit Act. And um, in 1987, we were, there were farm foreclosures and many transitions. And so, you know, it was working with people like Teresa Caveney, who was consulting with the Family Farm Coalition that was as it was forming, and Cheryl Cook and Howard Lyman with Farmers Union. And we spent a year outside the... Um, um, you know, outside the House Agriculture Committee, just working on borrowers' rights and, you know, really getting engaged in credit. 
And so that's basically, um, at that point, I really started working with the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, some of the groups from the Church's Committee on Voter Registration, which was part of Interfaith Action. So we worked with the groups working in the environmental justice movement. And I worked on, as Interfaith Action was reorganizing, I worked um, with these groups and trying to integrate them into the dialogue of the religious community. And we had a new leader come and he wasn't really happy about that. And so at that point, the Rural Coalition said, Lorette, come work with us because they were about to close down. Um, they had no funding and they had debts and everything. So it looked like the great opportunity. And John Zippert said, you come with us. And so I went to the Rural Coalition in 1991. And we can talk more about that history, but that's basically how I ended up where I am right now. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I would definitely like to go into the Rural Coalition and uh, what it's, uh, you know, what it's been, what its challenges have been. Uh, kind of especially with even within the context of during this period, especially 1990s often cited, you know, as as a watershed year because of the Organic Act passed and some of the other conservation programs passed. Uh, but at the same time, so within the context of sustainable agriculture and the rural coalition and the, and the issues around that. Uh, and then I'd like you to also touch on what are some of the high points policy-wise and programmatic that you accomplished with the Rural Coalition? Okay, yeah, I want to go back a little bit to the decade of the 80s oh, sure. as we do that because yeah. I think, you know, that was an important... The Rural Coalition was founded in 1978, okay? Mm -hmm. And there were a few organizations that were um, founded before that. And in terms of voices and national policy and everything... Um, you know, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives had been very active. The American Indian OIC and the American Indian Movement, both of those are founding members of the Rural Coalition, as was the Rural Advancement Fund, which is based in Orangeburg, South Carolina, and still continues and will be celebrating 80 years in 2017. And <clears throat> the Southern Tenant Farmers Union and... Um, you know, then there were also the debates over commodity policy and price and family farmers. So we were in this decade where what I really want to be noted is all of the groups of the rural coalition. You know, I was working with the churches, but I was working more and more with the groups of the rural coalition in that work. And so we got to know each other. And in 19, you know, we were already working together, like since the early 1980s. And there were already issues around discrimination, and we were starting to look at the various reports. There was a report in 1964, the Civil Rights Commission report in 1980. And, um, you know, you could see that was a tension of issues. And then for family farmers, it was the tension of the price issue. And that's been a big piece of where sustainable agriculture is also during all this time. And, you know, whether we did targeting and conservation programs, whether we did price, how the two things fit together. And so we were engaged in a very severe struggle, you know, and, and I think that was around, um, you know, the freedom to, I mean, the, the well, it, no, that, that was much later. Um, you know, the, the, um, the food from family farms and, and basically reestablishing the parity pricing. And so that was central to the 85 farm bill debate. And so mm -hmm. it was learning all of those issues and, you know, engaging um, as opposed to a targeting of benefits approach. And, you know, so the movement really had some role in kind of how farm policy got even more complex and then also expensive because you were looking at how much supply management right. and you were looking at the international grain reserves. And, you know, when I was with the churches, I worked with Mark Ritchie and we worked on trying to put together. He was at Institute for Ag and Trade Policy at the time. Mm -hmm. We worked on putting together a dialogue with the European Council of Churches and the Council of Churches, you know, that we had African members where we had one of the first international dialogues and we were looking at the trade agreements. And at that point, it was the general agreement on tariffs and trade and, you know, what that meant. And, um, so we brought the churches together and, you know, at that point we got a letter um, from the U.S. trade representative uh, who was Clayton Yider 
you know, who who said, um, you know, you held this meeting on U.S. soil. And why did you not inform us that you're holding a meeting on trade on U.S. soil? And, you know, it was also like the feedback. It's like, why would we get a letter like that? And we have our suspicions of why we did. But, you know, what we were talking about is that our trade policy that we as people in the United States had to be looking, you know, and I had had this other experience. So we could see the questions at what impact, you know, did, did we have? And, you know, it was really we were talking for the whole world what we're now talking about in U.S. ag policy, that localization, you know, local food is important. <laughs> and and what are the implications? And then I think it's also the balance of the grains and, and, and so forth. And then we were looking at the whole question of reserves. And when I, in 1983, I was working for Bread for the World, and I remember the date very, very well because I was nine months pregnant, and I was dressed in maternity slacks working in the basement of a warehouse for Bread for the World, and I was summoned to the Hill for a meeting about domestic drawdown of the U.S. food security, of this, of this international grain reserve, because I was the staff person on it, and I was in a room full of suits, and there are some people that are still players there, and it was the Democrats, and what they wanted is our sign-off for a domestic drawdown of this wheat reserve for to the processors. Mm-hmm. And, and it was all about where the money was. Mm-hmm. And so those things were, um, you know, really important dialogues that was going on, and then You know, Bob Greenstein told me at that point I had to come and speak to the we were also working on nutrition issues and on school lunch. And there was milk in school lunch. And we used to get together over in the Longworth cafeteria. We had hundreds of meetings and, you know, to but the 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 school foods um, service association was in town and I was supposed to come and talk about child nutrition and food stamps to them. And I remember also it was exactly the same time. And he says, you can't have the baby until, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, my son's now 32. It's going to be 33 in a couple of days. <laughs> and I told him you can't be born until then. So, um, but, you know, what we also saw over time is the money coming in even to the School Food Association and into the politics of food distribution, which were the same issues that were being discussed on the Indian reservations and among our members that, you know, well, as we moved. So I was working also, you know, with the tribal organizations. During that time, we worked, you know, with Greg Smitman, especially when I was, in, who was the founder or the first executive director of Intertribal Agriculture Council. Mm-hmm. So Family Farm Coalition was formed during that decade. Intertribal Ag Council was formed. And... Um, so gradually on the international issues, the domestic issues, the credit issues, the food issues, I was working on, you know, all of those issues and weaving together the people. And, you know, World Coalition was was meeting during that time. And they did a lot of work on a lot of the rural issues. Um, late 1970s, early 1980s, they were proposing that there be a rural development mission area. So when you're looking at it, there's a lot of things that are in the law now that all of the groups working on these issues have had a role in shaping. And, you know, in rural development and the undersecretary actually came later because you had, um, you know, the rural utilities and you had the various functions. USDA has been reorganized a couple times. You had Farmers Home Administration that had rural, you know, that had the housing loans as well as the farm loans. And so it's like lots of complexities. And it's all kind of moving together and it's, you know, it's very complicated. And then the complications of commodity policy. I remember Grant Bontrock, who, you know, was with National Farmers Organization and came to work also with David Center and the American Ag Movement. And, um, you know, so that's and, and then the founders of Family Farm Coalition and then with the Farmers Union. And so the work on commodities kind of merged into the work on credit. And before I was at Rural Coalition in the 1987 Ag Credit Act, well, in 1986, there was one little program under the Reagan administration that funded a couple of groups like the Federation of American Indian OIC 
to do outreach work to people who weren't included in programs. And what we did is got some language that it was report language that said they should continue this program. Mm -hmm. And then we were starting to work on definitions. And in 1987, um, we started in interfaith action and the work I started because I was working with the Federation. And by that time, Land Loss Prevention Project and um, the um, Intertribal Agriculture Council and Calvin King at Arkansas Land and Farm Development Corporation. And we basically said we need to, you know, there were 78,000 foreclosures at that point by Farmers Home Administration. We were working with Luann Kling and Farmers Legal Action, um, um, Jim Massey, and the whole group, um, Lynn Hayes, who's still around. And the issues were that the farm economy was collapsing and there were bad loans and, and so forth. But if you foreclosed on all of those, it was going to be a massive change in wealth. But at the same time, we were looking at what was happening with um, the black farmers. And then we were also working with the Council of Churches, people like um, Max Glenn and Mona Lee Brock, who were in Oklahoma with the Council of Churches. And Mona Lee was pulling guns out of people's hands because you had this spike in suicides. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, what we also were working on is this solidarity between you know, the African-American, American Indian, Latino, and the, and the other communities, and the white community of, you know, family farmers who were suffering these losses. And, you know, it also related to what the prices were, of course, and, and, and how you could make money. So those issues continued. But during that time, the one thing that happened in 1987 is we had to go and say, we wanted to be looking at some priority for people of color farmers. And what we figured out is you can't say, well, black farmers should get more loans or Hispanic farmers should get more loans or whatever. So we tried to look at what was a definition that would be a legal definition of discrimination. And that's where the term socially disadvantaged came from. And it came out of the Small Business Act, um, Section 8A, which basically said um, socially disadvantaged to somebody who's recognized um, because they're a member of a certain group rather than there for their individual qualities. So that became it became a precedent. You know, whether it was the best term to use is what we had. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we went to, you know, we didn't have any lawyers. And at that point, Keith Stroop was working with the American Ag Movement. He was a lawyer. We talked to him. And that's the definition that went in. And it was based on um, race and ethnicity at that point. And so that was I, I was staffing that work while I was at Interfaith Action with this working committee of these groups. So that's basically how they knew me. And it was like what I realized is you know, from my family history and struggle, it's a struggle about land and so forth. So we 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 did that. And then, um, you know, we, we prevailed and we worked on the borrower's rights and many other provisions in ag credit that are also important. And then in 1990, we worked on the farm bill, um, you know, with that whole team. And it's the first time that we had the whole team working together. And again, I, from my position in Interfaith Action, I was staffing that. It was before I went to the Rural Coalition. And we um, wrote the Minority Farmers' Rights Act, you know, and that was with land loss and the other groups. Um, and, um, and definitely um, the Federation. And out of that was for, was the 20, what we call the 2501 program. In Section 2501 of the 1990 Farm Bill, we got statutory authority for this program for outreach and assistance to socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. Mm -hmm. You know, and it began with, you know, a, um, authority for um, up to $10 million, which we struggled with ever since then. But um, that was the most important program. And we got some other language and started working working a little bit on transparency and accountability and other issues. Um, so that we, we got passed. It was actually um, Senator Wetch Fowler offered it as a floor amendment and uh, passing by unanimous consent. And, you know, Jesse Helms wanted to oppose it. And he says, well, if Jesse wants to vote against it, then 
you know, so be it. And, you know, so we spent all that time. We spent a lot of time in Congress in 87 and a lot in 1990. And then at that time, we were also, you know, looking at the conservation issues. We were already raising the question of the conservation reserve programs with a little bit of a warning of what does that mean? But it's also important when we're looking at the other reserve policies but also how do people get into the program? And one of the things the tribal members were already saying at that time is we never tore up our land that way. So it's not in bad enough condition to get into the conservation programs. Mm -hmm. So we were beginning to look at how those pieces, and there were so many issues during all that time. Mm -hmm. And then finally, um, you know, Interfaith Action reorganized and became Interfaith Impact. And I think the new guy didn't really want all these groups, but Rural Coalition wanted me to come there. Mm -hmm. And so they said, Lorette, you have to come over. And so... Um, I began working in 90, late 91, and I think I started on April 1st, 1992, as the executive director. <laughs> Thank you for taking us back there. That was very important information. And I, I have to say personally, you know, that was starting in 82 is when I was really caught up in those issues. And for the land stewardship project, which I was directing, it was the, the insurance companies taking over the land uh, in the yes. mid 80s and when the prices went down in the and everybody was stretched and credit and uh, not able to pay back the banks and the insurance companies and the insurance companies were taking them over and not and many of them were not taking care of the land once they got it on top of taking it away yeah. so that became a real dominant issue for our program and led me to hire some of the organizers like the late Steve O'Neill and yes. Mark Schultz people like that that then became uh, over the years and the struggles that you'll continue to talk about. Well, and see, that was the thing is we began working with Land Stewardship Project over those years. And we always have And Land Stewardship pro, um, Project is one of the mem is one of the one of the um, Euro American based groups, Midwestern based groups, family farm based groups that's been a member of rural coalition throughout the many years. And, you know, we still work closely with Mark and also Rhonda Perry in Missouri Rural Crisis and right. Family Farm Defenders, right. um, you know, have always been um, a part and co-conspirators in the struggle, you know, also of minority farmers. Right, right. So. So I, well, now you brought us up to the, to, uh, the 1992 and you're beginning with rural coalition. Why don't you take it from there? Okay, so, you know, with Rural Coalition, um, when I came on board, um, you know, the Rural Coalition, uh, their, long t their, their founding director, you know, since 1978, Larry Parakini had left, and um, they were without staff. They had like an interim leader. They hadn't had any staff for 18 months. And, you know, there's a history of the groups working together. It started out as a kind of Washington-based movement. And then in 1980, it went national. And, you know, it was groups like the American Indian Movement, um, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, um, Arkansas Land and Farm Development Corporation. And there was some work sometimes with the 1890s and sometimes you know, not the 1890 colleges and universities and the tribal colleges. And, you know, what we knew from all of the reports that had come out, and then especially from field and lived experience of members, is that things were not um, progressing. We didn't see like the farm suicides with the black farmers, because I think they pretty much expected that they were going to have all of these problems. Um, and, you know, that they were going to experience racism, they were going to have applications thrown away and whatever. And I think always we were also looking for what are the models that would work. And so what we knew is that support for the groups that were working on the ground was critically important. So that's where you had people like Shirley Sherrod, who was working in Georgia. And, you know, there's much more history around Shirley Sherrod and what happened you know, to her and all the years after, but she was the staff running the um, Georgia office in Albany, Georgia. And her husband, um, a prominent and well-known civil rights leader, um, Charles Sherrod, and, you know, she had the lived experience in the South in a very extremely violent time. Her father was murdered. Um, and she was... Um, 
trying to, she sat down with the USDA loan officers and they would have a meeting and she had a whole process of walking through what did the farmer need to do? What did the, um, you know, USDA need to do and had successful packages of loans. You still had trouble because it was the issue of somebody wants your land. And, you know, you had at that point county committees, both on the loan committees with what was then Farmers Home Administration and then the ASCS, the Ag Conservation and Stabilization uh, Service that had, um, you know, the, the, the farm programs. And, if you look back over the numbers, and that's why I always appreciated Grant Buntrock, is when he later got over to USDA under the Clinton administration, he had all the numbers. They had they had identified everybody's race, but there was a lot of information about how many farmers by race, gender, and ethnicity were on county committees, because it was always a problem to be able to have numbers that could be the basis of an argument for why you needed a policy to change something. So we knew that land loss was happening, but you know, all of the numbers didn't match up. And Luann Kling also helped, you know, during the time when she was at USDA to actually get data and numbers so that we could um, not only document the lived experience and, you know, the, the, the issues that were going on, but also um, you know, what the numbers told us and down to the county level. And that was always one of our themes. So we had to go down to the county level. Mm-hmm. And so we were talking, we had John Zippert who worked down in, um, you know, the feder. he ran the training center of the Federation down in Green and Sumter County, Alabama. And, you know, what, what they did is they had the farmers run for election in the county committees. And, you know, when we later went back in the 90s and looked at numbers, they had the highest turnout rates. You know, t- typically in county committee elections, maybe 5% of the people vote. They had, if they had 73% of the black farmers, then 43% of the white farmers <laughs> would vote. Mm-hmm. And so we were also always talking about democratization and democratic participation mm-hmm. and and all of those issues in the communities. But we also realized cards were stacked against people. And so, you know, in 1990, we got a little in the farm bill. We had a whole longer piece of what we wanted to do. And we started doing field organizing, but at the same time, we were doing much more documentation on discrimination. Rural Coalition previously had worked on a wide range of rural issues. And I think during that time, our leader said, we have to focus you know, on this particular need. And we knew we needed the outreach. We knew we needed to do land continuity. We knew we need to do wills and, and, and other issues. We were looking more and more at the tribal issues. In um, the 1990 Farm Bill, we had also worked with Greg Smitman. And, you know, it was a small bit of language, but it was really to allow the tribes to run their own agriculture programs. Mm-hmm. And... And so, you know, we were looking at authorities through all of that time, and we really specialized. And, um, you know, in 1993, we were founding members of the National Campaign for Sustainable Agriculture. Mm -hmm. And we used to run the Minority Farm Issues Committee. And, um, you know, during that time, too, we were arguing to funders who were saying, well, Sustainable ag was becoming all the rage, but they were saying, um, "Is equ- how does equity relate to sustainability?" Mm-hmm. And that was a tough argument. And funding has always been hard, hard, hard mm-hmm. for all of our groups to found. And so, you know, it was just like not an interest within the agricultural sector. But at the same time, you had poverty in all of the places. But what we never had was the research to really be able to document the economic arguments, you know, and foundations wanted to see in dollars and cents, what if you invest, you know, and and we were all talking different languages during that time. So we continued and, and kept on working. Um, and then the 1996, you know, it was a 1995 farm bill became 1996. And, you know, that was freedom to farm and decoupling. And, you know, it was all these debates over agriculture policy. And 
all of the community, and at that point, the church community was still much more active before the churches all split up. And I think that was a big factor we have to look at. You know, that the North, there were the North and South churches, and, you know, the money that went into hunger got cut back. Um, you know, it was, um, you know, still the overhang of what had happened with block granting under the Reagan administration and poverty and, and so forth. And so in 1996, it did not look like a good year to try and get a lot of things. But, you know, and we were still like implementing the farm crisis. You know, we worked afterwards on the foreclosures. We did we mailed out 78,000 letters and tried to get borrowers' rights protected. And, you know, flag had an important point at that point. But then in the 90s, you know, we were dealing with farm economy, but we were dealing more and more with civil rights. And 96 was not a good Congress um, to be moving forward. So we started, um, you know, organizing more and coming up with an agenda. And you know, at the same time, we were starting to, with the 2501 program, get programs on the ground and realizing, you know, the Rural Coalition is a multicultural organization. We have one table. Everybody's around the same table. It's the most diverse of the rural organizations. It always has been. We believe in democratic elections and, you know, um, democratic participation of our members. And so we um, were moving along in terms of how we made decisions. But what we realized is resources had to get back to the grassroots level because the kind of work that Shirley and John and the Intertribal Ag Council were doing had to be put into place. We um, we convinced um, Farm Service Agency under Grant Bontrock and Luann Kling to do a training on county committee elections and other things, and we brought a multicultural group into USDA. You know, at that point, we were also talking about discrimination. There was more activism around the settlement of, you know, around the black farm lawsuits. And so we worked really, really hard on those issues, but we were finding other issues like how did conservation relate to that? And, you know, we got some funds and we did a whole program on county committee elections and people went back all over the country. We started working with the Hmong Farmers and National Hmong Farmers Association. Oh, yeah. We were working with the Latino farmers. We, you know, and, and so as we started talking more, we were also like looking at numbers and making a better case and a stronger case on discrimination. And so it was during that time that Grant Buntrock admitted that USDA had discriminated and that became the basis for the Pigford lawsuits and the whole era that we were going on. So we were doing more and more at the local level to try and get people more engaged and to be asking for what was rightfully theirs. But then we went into a couple of decades of work on the lawsuits. And, you know, it was like in 98 and 99, what we had to do is work on a law to waive the statute of limitations. Because what we found is during this time that USDA had shut down its civil rights operation, and, and in 1983, there had been no office. So if you sent a complaint, it would get you know, filed in a circular file. And what happened is if you made a complaint, your file would get sent to Washington and wouldn't be serviced anymore. Mm -hmm. And we were only unraveling what was actually happening inside, and it still wasn't functioning in 1996. And so... Congress, we had to get them to pass a law because you can't sue the government under, mo you know, it's all so complicated mm -hmm. and we had to learn it all. And, you know, we, we um, you know, researched it and the, there's a two-year statute of limitations on credit issues, but there's a waiver of sovereign immunity, which means you can't sue the king. Yeah. And so this would allow you to sue the government for damages. And so it's the basis of the lawsuits. And um, we convinced Congress to waive it all the way back to 1981, which was two years before the office was closed. But you had to have done a complaint. And we went into the era of, you know, the Pickford One lawsuit in 1999, that settlement process began, but it wasn't until um, we had to do more work in the farm bills later on in 2002 and then into the 2008 farm bill 
to um, allow the settlements of the um, Keep Seagull case and then to, you know, to really push the government on the Hispanic and women's lawsuits. And those were all discrimination cases. They're discrimination cases, right. yes. So these are, you know, that, um, that because of race and ethnicity, that the government had discriminated and treated those farmers, it's, they were treated differently. And they had to show they were treated differently than a similarly situated white farmer. And then we began the era of, of having to work on those cases. And since that, all, all of our members have spent thousands and thousands of hours of uncompensated time working on you know, those lawsuits. John Zippert himself, who's now our chair, been our chairperson, wrote, um, he um, wrote a thousand packages in Pickford One and 95% were approved. And and then there's, there's one other thing about the Rural Coalition. When I was hired in 1992, we brought our assembly, our chairperson at that point moved from Hubert Sapp to Carlos Morentes. And he um, was the head of border agricultural workers in El Paso. So we also started to work on the trade issues. Oh, yes. And so we also spent time um, in the early part of the 90s opposing NAFTA. We took a congressional delegation, including Colin Peterson and um, John Conyers and several others, um, Bill Zeliff, Gary Condit. Um, down to Mexico. They came on Air Force Two and we showed them what it would do in rural communities in Mexico. And we were working because we have member groups in Mexico too. And so we also worked against NAFTA and CAFTA during all that time. And and we're working on the farm worker issues as well. NAFTA is the North American Free Trade Agreement. Yes, sorry about that. Right. That's right. And CAFTA is the Central America Free right. Trade Agreement that later came out, and and so it, but it was also, and we were we were also in Seattle in 1999 on the WTO and at the World Trade Organization, you know, going back to this early work, and so we've been part of all those struggles, and you know how to us it's the democratic nature of um, negotiating all these rules at the international level that have impacts on all of the communities without the communities being at the table. Mm -hmm. And so we have worked together as, you know, this group, we worked within the sustainable ag, you know, or, you know, memberships during all that time. And, yeah. you know, we worked in other collaborations. Right. Um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you then, yeah, you touched on that a little bit with the interplay with, with the sustainable ag working groups and then what became the campaign and then ultimately merged and became NSAC. Uh, over the years, I know there's been issues of the, the fact that like you, uh, that, you know, the, the priorities of some of the sustainable agriculture groups haven't always embraced the concerns around diversity. And I wanted you to talk about that. I mean, I understand personally some of the reasons why I think, but I'd be able to get, I'd like to get that on the record as much as we can. Well, and I think, um, you know, this is really a conversation for all of our members. You know, the Rural Coalition, I'm the executive director. I work for the Rural Coalition. Mm -hmm. um, I'm here because the Rural Coalition asked me to be. But I respect our leaders and we work with them and they are a very dynamic and a very diverse group and they have their opinions. And so in some ways, that's a conversation that we have collectively with everybody. What we've Oh, I think we have probably cultural differences and cultural understandings, just even in our processes. Mm -hmm. So we tend to work in a collective way rather than by doing a lot of voting. So, you know, we have shied away from the word priorities because when you're talking about inclusion and equity, you know, what, what are your numbers and so the most votes, so one issue that was always an issue in the campaign was, well, which priorities? And so what about extension agents on Indian reservations? It's now the federally recognized tribal extension program. You know, we have 550, you know, 547 tribes in the United States. And at that point, there were 28 extension agents on tribal lands. And we wanted more money for that program. But, you know, we're told well, there's not enough votes for that. Mm. 
And, you know, well, you're talking about millions of acres of tribal land. It's like on what basis? And Not enough votes where. With, with, like within the campaign in later years, you yeah. know, I think as we went on, it's like, that's not quite as much an appropriations priority. And so that's just like one illustration sure. of the issue because you have like systems and whatever. And I think within the rural coalition, it's more, you know, a consensus thing that this is an important issue and maybe we have to give it more weight, you know, because there's there's less. But, you know, we worked, you know, especially in the years when Amy um, was leading the campaign, we worked um, well, we worked on various issues. We felt that there, there was support. I think there was always questions about the other issues. They had a, probably the most painful one, and I kind of hesitate to say this, was, was was the red dots. It's like you put green dots on things that you agreed with the most and yellow if you would help out. And you had like one or two red dots if there was something you didn't want to do. Mm. And the red dots were on two specific issues, anything to do with farm workers. They didn't want the campaign to do. And and it wasn't everybody. Yeah, you know, sure. it was it was, you know, like somebody. And the other one was on trying to deal with the issue of um, participation on count, USDA county committees. Mm. And so some of the structural issues and I think probably I don't know if we ever spent the time like really sitting down and talking out these issues. And I think what we've learned over time is we have to be about what power do we need to change things. And that means if we're going to work together, we have to work out our internal disagreements on issues. And, you know, and we have to figure out where we can work together our groups have to figure out where do we invest our time, you know, within which which movements. Um, you have to look at where do resources flow, how do foundations fund things. And um, then also, you know, what is our definition? You know, is equity accepted as a piece of sustainability, which we strongly believe it is. And, you know, we're looking more now at the concepts of food sovereignty, um, you know, new fads come up, like one is agroecology. And our, our members believe you want to see, you know, how to have a sustainable method of agriculture. That doesn't necessarily mean we want to start a USDA agroecology pra- project. We want to look at how does this integrate with everything people do? And when you go back to like in Oklahoma with the black and the tribal communities, what does that mean? What does it mean in Mississippi? What does it mean for commodity farmers? So we like to go back and do the research to actually know what we're talking about mm-hmm. and and then understand the implications of any one policy decision on everybody. And so I think what you know we recognize is, you know, NSAC is a strong organization, it has a lot of power on Capitol Hill and so forth. You know, but we're not a weak organization. And I think we've worked on on different things. And the question is, do we support, you know, each other's priorities? And and how do we do that? And I think the conversation's still going on. Yeah. You know, like right now we did work together. We did meetings in late um, December and we went together to the Office of Management and Budget and, you know, the White House and said, you need to put more money into the 2501 program, which got cut back. And that worked. We got, you know, a budget request of 10 more million dollars. Okay, so, you know, there's kind of win-win. So what we're we're, we're really trying to work on how, but when the campaign reorganized, it was sort of they dropped the Minority Farm Issues Committee and we were somehow no longer really in it. And instead, you know, I think they were kind of recruiting different ones of our members to be in it. And it's it's managed in a different way. And everybody, you know, we believe in de- democratic participation. And so what we're, we we formed this GOAT process, the getting our act together. And it's kind of like a mm-hmm. weekly phone call. And it's like just to find ways to work together where everybody can keep and maintain their own identity. Because what we understand is, you know, NSAC comes out of who its members are and what their level, you know, of, you know, what, what their familiarity is on issues. And we have a different level of familiarity, oftentimes in different places. Um, and sometimes at the field level. And so it takes courage to have those conversations and, and, and then also to understand how do we build the political power. And in general, um, 
you know, as I said, we've worked with some of the groups that we've always worked on together where we have a common understanding of a common struggle. So Land Stewardship Project, you know, has understood those issues. Missouri Rural Crisis Center, so they've stood beside, and Family Farm Defenders on trade issues, on on other issues. We have a lot of overlaps, probably more with the Family Farm Coalition, who is also an important organization. And, And so, you know, again, that conversation continues. There's probably, you know, lots more to say but you know as as our chairperson will say is like you know we have real enemies mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and well and it's about and it is it's about power right. but you know and then we've also been spending many many you know there's a whole other chapter on all of the different lawsuits and we're still working on a very unjust outcome of the Hispanic and women's lawsuit that just closed or it's or the Hispanic and women claim settlement process that just closed um, a year ago and very unsatisfactorily with 10,361 claims being rejected because of fraud concerns, um, maybe related to the fact that there were clusters of claims in some places. And you know, we said, well, there was clusters of discrimination. And, you know, so like one claim will be funded in one place, but if there were 10 in another, those were denied. And so, you know, I mean, there's another level of attention that we have to pay. And at the same time, what we've also done is worked with our member groups, you know, such that things like in the conservation programs, we suggested high tunnels and wrote in a regulation comments that NRCS should fund these seasonal greenhouses because that's what we knew farmers liked. Mm -hmm. We got a higher level of cost share so the government would pay more for socially disadvantaged farmers. And, you know, in in 2008, we got 30 sections in the farm bill that we worked on and transparency and accountability, like making sure we know how many farmers are in each one of the programs. How do we, a receipt for service, which was finally made mandatory in 2012, if you go into a USDA office, they have to say what you asked for and what you got. Mm. So, you know, those are really because discrimination, a lot of the discrimination was people being turned away from the offices Mm -hmm. and being told that, you know, you don't um, have, um, you know, that, that you, you know, you don't belong here or you're not a real farmer. And, you know, also teaching farmers like how do you, um, uh, you know, why you need to register your land. Somebody who doesn't want to go back or with the immigrant farmers who doesn't want to go into USDA well, now if there are programs like that, and we also push for microloans, mm-hmm. and those those were approved, and um, and so those things have been changing. And you know, one um, former Clinton administration high-ranking USDA official said, "You guys were we don't know how you got all of those. You don't give as many political contributions and everything, and you're really punching above your weight." Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's like the the shared work that we have to do, and. You know, we also push that there be discussions on commodity policy within the campaign. And, you know, that was finally done, not with a lot of agreement, you know, and we're looking at how all these pieces um, fit together. Um, but the structural issues are what we um, participated in. And I think in the places where we've been able locally to get people working together, we're making more progress. And so... You know, we 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 believe we need all of us, but that includes us. And I think, you know, what we've tried to educate people is that our members have been here for a long time. You know, we have Rural Advancement Fund, but we also have, um, you know, the Federation's been around almost 50 years. And, you know, that they've been steeped in the civil rights struggles and in, you know, and their land struggles. Um, RAF was funded, was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt and A. Philip Randolph, and it grew out of the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. And so it it's about the land. It's about the tribal struggles. And um, so, you know, we're still in that right now. And, you know, now figuring out, you know, where we go and working on an equity package for the next farm bill. And um, how can we work together from positions of strength where we respect the strengths and the knowledge that all of us have? Well, that's really what I wanted you to get to as we draw this to a close is sort of the next steps. Uh, And so one of them is this real focus on equity for the next farm bill. Yeah. And, you know, how can we, 
you understand, you know, between 2008 and 2012, the census of agriculture begins December 31st, 2007. And, you know, and then it begins again December 31st, 2012. So it was pretty much the period of that best farm bill Mm -hmm. that we've had in recent years. And it was not good in all ways, Mm -hmm. but it was, you know, we got more things. We had a net increase of 28,000 farmers of of, of all operators within the constituency. So we're seeing you know, after many, many years, a reversal. It's more the Hispanic and the Asian farmers, um, but it's um, but it's also, you know, increases in the African-American and, the, and American Indian. Some of it is we're working with NAS and other USDA agencies to get them more connected with USDA, but um, we need to continue that. You know, they're important in land ownership. Look at where the black farmers are. They're in the poorest communities in the United States, the Hispanic farmers, the state of New Mexico. We're looking at the grazing land. We're looking at these other issues. So if we're really concerned about sustainability and then look at the amount of tribal land that there is in the United States, if you're concerned about the climate, those are communities we have to work on. If you're concerned about poverty, those are the communities where we have to work. We have one of our members, we're looking for what are the models that work. Our member up in um, Massachusetts has 275 um, refugee farmers growing on 70 acres of land, selling at 42 farmers markets in the Boston area. They're African refugees from the genocide in Rwanda and Burundi. They're the Hmong farmers 30 years ago. What are the models that work and, and empower people? And, and, you know, how do we invest in those? How do we make that commitment to equity such that the groups can, you know, have self-determination, self-definition, um, self-reliance in their communities and our efforts strengthening and weakening that? We want diversity to be something more than, you know, we got a couple people on a committee who look different than us to something that we're really going back to who represents the communities and how do we reach the farmers in those communities to be the actors in their own lives and to really have the access to resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and we have a lot of people that come to us when it's time to apply for a grant and they need, you know, I, I need the name of a minority farmer in this state or that state. And, you know, that's not helping. It's not a way in. What we need is the solidarity of going to the communities, being in the communities, learning and sharing the exchanges and conversations and, you know, then crafting agriculture policies that take into consideration all we know about trade agreements, all we know about inequity. You know, we are working much more closely with USDA than we have. And yet even still, there's always more to be done. Right. That's right. Well, thank you very much for it. This is very good. Yeah. I, uh, if you have anything uh, further, I think this is very, just what I was hoping we'd get from this interview. If there's anything else you'd want to say now, or we could wrap it up. Yeah, I think, you know, it's probably time to wrap it up. I mean, we didn't talk all about the Civil Rights Action Team report and how the Small Farms Commission grew out of that report. And, you know, what I, you know, I really want to emphasize is a lot of the things that are part of the history of the Sustainable Ag Movement we have been active players on right. and and helped shape the policies. Exactly. And, um, you know, our members have always carried their weight in, in doing this. And, and I think, you know, some of the practices and things that we know work best in our communities work best for all communities. So, you know, with the high tunnels um, at USDA, there's now over 11,000 of them. There's now over 14,000 um, microloans. And NSAC worked very closely on that. We had been working on that ever since back in 97. And um, USDA started it before. We now have outreach happening again with you with farm service agencies so um you know there's um we just want people to know that you know things like the 2501 program started long ago and it's long history and became some of the models for things that later became beginning farmers and ranchers and and those type of things so we just want to know that we've always been there and you know the more we can make um real relationships um, where people bring whatever their knowledge is and respect the knowledge of others, um, you know, and respect the organizations. And, you know, there should be a strong NSAC. There also needs to be a, 
a strong rural coalition and all of our members need to be strong um, so that they can play, you know, and put their political weight to work, you know, in the South and in the West and and in all the places where we need, you know, it's about it's about building enough power to make this change. Right. That's right. Well, thank you. And, you know, there's one other thing, Loretta, if I could ask you, maybe I'll splice it in or something somehow. Um, who what, I know about Farm Aid, of course. Uh, what, who have been some of the funders that maybe should be in the record that have been supportive of the Rural Coalition or the groups that are, are key players in the Rural Coalition? Jesse Smith Noyes Foundation, you know, would be our, you know, our top, always been there and so forth. And the Presbyterian Hunger Program, um, you know, Farm Aid, uh, you know, some and, you know, Kellogg Foundation has stood with us and especially in the last couple farm bill debates and particularly like in 2008. Um, and in 2012, that really helped to sustain us. But those are our foundation funders. This has been part of the National Sustainable Agriculture Oral History Archive, produced by Ron Cruz, available on the Minnesota Institute for Sustainable Agriculture website. The podcast was made possible by the Center for Rural Affairs. Rural Affairs.